0: if you'll continue with me this evening in Judges chapter 2. Which chair do you choose? Chair number 1, chair number 2, or chair number 3? Okay. 3, 2, 1. Chuck Swindoll, in one of his uh, books, Growing Strong in the Seasons of Life, he relates a story that really tells it all, I guess you would say. He talks about being in a chemistry class where the instructor placed a frog in a beaker of cool, clear water. Then he placed the uh, Bunsen burner beneath the beaker and very slowly heated the water. For over two hours, the frog... Faithfully stayed happily in the beaker as the temperatures increased. And before it sensed what was happening, it died from the rising water temperature. You see, the change, he says, took place so gradual that the frog, or gradually that the frog felt no discomfort and did not jump out of the beaker. Well, let me tell you something else that has taken place over a period of time, so slowly. Since World War II, dangerous and almost imperceptibly uh, perceptible changes have occurred in our society. Although now we have profited greatly from advances made in science, I'm not discrediting that, in industry, still moral erosion has occurred. And unfortunately, like the frog, we um, have been unaware of what has been taking place, or so it seems. But as we look back on a situation, we see the, t- the deterioration, and that alarms many of us. Since the fundamentalist modernist controversy of the 20s, yes, that's when it started, There has been a continuing decline in knowledge of the Word of God and our understanding of it as the infallible, God-breathed, profitable Word of God. I was listening to someone on the news this morning before coming to church, and they were talking about this generation even has come to the point where it is uh, the one that reads the Word of God least, that believes in the Word of God. Humanism has affected almost every area of our life. Some of its influence has been helpful, don't get me wrong, but certain of its basic assumptions have had a negative effect on uh, education, uh, politics, ethics, medicine, and business. You see, the change has been so gradual that only with the benefit of hindsight as we're looking back and longer see, the ones that are here in the beaker now, the heat's rising, and, and we've been in it. We, a lot of times, didn't see the change. It's been so gradual, but looking back, you begin to see it. Hindsight has brought that in. And we began to discern the process has brought us to our present moral and spiritual chaos. With increased freedom, had... It, has come the discarding of traditional values and the frequency of couples living together in an altered alternative lifestyle has grown to the point where it no longer arouses anyone Uh, and the increased uh, incidence of single women deliberately i'm talking about deliberately choosing to have children out of wedlock for other purposes has, you know, just uh, been accepted today. Homosexuality uh, is gaining acceptance in our society and is even protected uh, by law in many states. So the church is no longer a significant force in the community and moral values have declined as integrity has fallen into repute. The number of fetuses aborted in a single year exceeds all Americans ever killed in wars. Wow. But no shock to any of us. Wanting more freedom there. Increased child neglect, drug abuse, problems of the elderly are the results of subtle decline in values. Today is a day of pluralism. And when society uh, contains uh, people... Um, so many different beliefs, we began to push tolerance, but we get mistaken about uh, the word tolerance. We start using it as a word for approval and in a democracy, the law gives people the freedom to to worship as they please, and we must exercise patience and tolerance with those who believe and practice things that God uh, has condemned in his word. But we as believers have an obligation before God to maintain a separate walk so we won't become defiled by those who disagree with us. As in 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 14 through 17 talks about. Or 14 through uh, chapter 17. The changes in our society have been so subtle that we, like the Israelites and judges, have become accustomed to the sinful ways of our pagan society. Those ways uh, that used to seem so sinful don't seem sinful anymore. And uh, uh, we have become complacent in accepting all of this. And in judges, the Jews gradually edited God's word for their benefit. They worked it out where it, made it, it was more convenient for them. And with editing God's word, they disobeyed God's word and God's command, and so they ended up compromising. And with their compromise came an accustomed lifestyle to the sinful ways of their neighbors, so much so that their ways didn't seem sinful any longer. In other words, tolerance became approval. For them it's so important for believers to impart biblical based beliefs values and goals to their family this is what we were talking about this morning when parents neglect divinely ordered principles their children grow to adulthood but adulthood having a form of godliness third chair but lacking in knowledge of his power. When parents do not prepare their children to withstand the problems and pressures that they will have to face, they end up lacking a spiritual dynamic to give direction to their lives, and they fall prey to what? To materialism, hedonism, humanism, relativism, cultism, all kinds of isms. So let's first of all look at what happened here in chapter 2. The reproof now the angel of the Lord came from up from Gilgal to Botcham and he said I brought you up out of Egypt and led you into the land which I have sworn to your fathers and I said I will not break my covenant with you that's very important God never breaks his word with us we need to teach that to our generation we need to teach it to our children we need to teach it to our people god is faithful he never never breaks his word his covenant he said i'll never break my covenant with you and as for you you shall make no covenant with the inhabitants of the land but you on the other hand you need to make sure that you will not fall prey to those around you and what they accept in their kind of lifestyle because if you do i'm not breaking my covenant i'll always be with you but you will choose not to accept my blessings and victory. And there will be consequences with it. But you have not obeyed me. What is this that you've done? Therefore I also said, I will not drive them out before you. So I'm not going to drive them out before you. They're just going to be a thorn in the flesh. But they will become as thorns in your side. And their gods will be a snare to you. There will be thorns and snares. When the angel of the Lord spoke these words to all the sons of Israel, the people lifted up their voices and wept. That's where botchum comes in, the word meaning weeping. So they named the place Bachem, and there they sacrificed to the Lord. I want you to look at the identification here of what's going on. Now, the angel of the Lord came up from Gilgal. Reveals a few things about the meeting between the angel of the Lord and the Israelites. Those two involved. First of all, the ones involved the Israelites, God's chosen people. They had disobeyed God. And so God's appearing to them. But he's coming from the place where they should have been going back to to remember the Lord. The angel of the Lord is probably referring to Christ incarnate, as we mentioned this morning. It speaks of him uh, in a a form of a person in the Old Testament, pre-time, pre-before his coming uh, at the birth of, uh, uh, in uh, Bethlehem. And so in turn, uh, we, uh, we see this pre-incarnate Christ. is, is used a uh, number of times this way. And the angel of the Lord is coming from Gilgal. And that's very important. And as I said, Gilgal was where the tabernacle was originally located in Joshua 4, 19 through 20. And it is where the, are, uh, where the men of Israel were circumcised. And that is rolling away the reproach of Egypt, getting away from that old lifestyle, having anything to do with it and becoming God's chosen people, separating themselves, making themselves different. It also uh, was where the Lord appeared to Joshua and assured him of victory as he began his campaign to conquer Canaan. He had built or he had placed an altar there of the 12 stones that he pulled out from the river when they crossed the river, when God opened up the river miraculously to, for them to come back and to remember what God had done before they went in to defeat each and every uh, enemy that they encountered because this was a reminder of what God had done and that God would be with them. And they needed to be uh, reminded of this. And so the Lord had been faithful in fulfilling His promise but they failed to obey his commands. And there was uh, no blame on God's part. All the blame was on their part. He helped them uh, you know, uh, through the Red Sea. He helped them through the wilderness wandering. He helped them into the promised land. He helped them uh, uh, by giving them the land. And he also helped them by conquering their enemies in taking the land. And so this was what he had done. He was true to his word. Well, what was the problem? Cause of the problem, the nature of the reproof. I brought you up out of Egypt and led you into the land which I had sworn to your fathers. And I said, I will never break my covenant with you. But as for you, you shall make no covenant with the inhabitants of this land. You shall tear down their altars. But you have not obeyed me. What is this that you have done? This strongly supports the idea that Israel had broken The covenant with God, or treaty that they had made with the Lord. From Deuteronomy chapter 7, verses 12 and 14. The Lord had redeemed the Israelites out of Egypt, but they failed to destroy the pagan altars in Canaan. And they had made a covenant with the Canaanites because of this. So what did that bring about? It brought about compromise. They compromised themselves. The result, well, the result, because of the uh, Israelites' compromise and disobedience, they lacked watchfulness. This is so very important, which caused them to be unaware of God's growing displeasure. In other words, if we're not walking with the Lord, if we're not asking God to reveal to us the different things in our life that are bringing uh, disgrace to His name or or separating us or or having us grow apart in our, our walk with Him, then we will not be watchful of these things. We've got to be close to him so that we will be watchful of these things. If not, then we will grow accustomed to him, and as we grow accustomed to him, we'll uh, continue to compromise and continue to be disobedient with the Lord. The people no longer possess, because of that, confidence in the Lord, that the Lord was indeed with them. And because of this, they began to choose other gods. And so they, just like when Moses went up on the mountain and and the uh, Israelites were below, what did they do? They made their own gods, didn't they? And so this was what happened. No one thought of calling on the Lord to find out why he had withheld his blessing. It says, therefore, I also said, I will not drive them out before you, but you will become as thorns Or they will become as thorns in your side and their gods will be a snare to you. God withdrew his protection and his presence from them. He didn't withdraw altogether, but he said, okay, you're going to do it your way. Then I will let you face the enemy your way. And you'll see what what comes about. And the Canaanites became thorns in their flesh, it says. And the nation... Uh, in the land of Canaan would become not only thorns, but snares to them. So the effect here, when the angel of the Lord in verses um, 4 and 5, when the angel of the Lord spoke these words to all the sons of Israel, the people lifted up their voices and wept. So they named that place Bachem. And there they sacrificed to the Lord. So it sounds good, right? Okay. They wept. They felt sorry. Well, upon hearing the indictment, and you'll look at At the book of Judges, uh, there's something that we need to point out here. They wept and then offered sacrifices. But it seems like their sorrow was because of the consequences of their sins. And there's a difference there. I mean, we we need to be sorrowful because of the consequences of our sins, but it needs to lead to true repentance, doesn't it? And if there's not true repentance, all it'll be is just sorrowful. Being sorry because of the consequences that it's caused, and uh, they were not; it was not because of the wickedness of their sin. And because of this, it was a shallow and temporary sorrow, which never led to true repentance. We uh, read about the importance of this in Second Corinthians chapter seven, verses eight through eleven. One author stated it this way: True repentance must go beyond tears and sorrow and achieve a right about face, a turning of one's entire life from sin to a walk that pleases the Lord. If you're not going to do that, see, they soon went back to their old ways. Well, then, what brought this on? Well, let's just look at the pattern here. Sin, in our life that we fail to conquer, just like with them, it will eventually conquer us. We think that we can... Overcome it, we think that we can play with it, we think that we can be in charge of it, but we can't. It will eventually overcome us. The people of Israel found themselves enslaved to one pagan nation after another, and the Lord kept his word and chastised them. So let's look at their pattern of failure. Forgetfulness, first of all. When Joshua in Judges 2, 6-10, through 10, when Joshua had dismissed the people, the sons of Israel, went each to his inheritance to possess the land. The people served the Lord all the days of Joshua. First chair, right? And all the days of the elders who served Joshua. Second chair. Who had seen all the great work of the Lord. which he had done for Israel. Then Joshua the son of Nun. The servant of the Lord died at the age of 110. And they buried him in the territory of his inheritance. In in Timnath. Heres. In the high country of the uh, Ephraim. North of Uh, mount gash all the generation also were gathered to their fathers and there arose another generation another generation after them third chair who did not know the lord nor yet the work which he had done for israel as long as there were leaders at the head of the nation whose commitment to the lord was real the people conformed outwardly did you hear me they conformed outwardly to the conditions of the covenant Now, you think this is not real, just read Revelation and read about the millennial. The Lord will come back. There will be children who will be born who will go into the millennial. Some will believe, but some will not. But there will be peace throughout because God will rule with an iron rod. And he will keep everything under submission. Now, for some, it will be joyful. But for others, it will be a burden. And they will conform outwardly because they have to. It's just like being in the home. You know, when we're young, we conform outwardly. But a lot of times, boy, we can't wait until we get out on our own. Because we want to do our own thing. And so they held Joshua and the elders in high esteem because of their example. They saw that, and they recognized that, this, and, and they were fearful of it, too, uh, to a degree. But this godly leadership and right attitude brought, a, you know, a, with it, excuse me, brought a measure of stability, but the nation soon lost that stability when the leaders left, when they went off the scene. Judges 2 and verse 7 implies that the knowledge of God enjoyed by Joshua and the elders, it was personal. You can see that. They had seen great works of God and had witnessed His power, and as a result, they grew mature in the faith. They were able to set an example before others. They founded their beliefs on God's character and the revelation of His will to do what He would have them to do. As a consequence, their values were the result of conviction, which it should be, and differed from the next generation and the next. It is important for each generation to recognize and appreciate they should, just like they did, the great men and women who build and protect their nation, their churches, their lives, their families. It is a sad situation and very disturbing when revisionist historians debunk the heroes and heroines of the past. And almost make them out to be criminals. It is a crying shame when, they, when a country comes to that. But notice that Joshua's obituary is brief. That's all it had to be. It tells us a lot about him, though. It says the servant of Yahweh. He was a true servant of God. In other words, it wasn't school they attended or the grades they maintained or uh, the positions that he held or the victories that he acquired that made him great. It was servanthood. That's it, people. That's what makes every one of you great in the Lord. Servanthood. It's not who, you, what name titles or what uh, other things that you might do. God judges us upon the extent to which we have given ourselves to the service of the Lord. That's what he judges upon. Just as important as learning from these great men, though, you should recognize them and, and respond properly to them and, 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 and respect them and learn from them. But just as important as learning from these great men and women is building your own faith in God and his promises, and this is where the ball dropped here. You need to do that so that you can also help the next generation so that they can build their own faith also. But there was a memory lapse, it seems, which caused indifference in their life. At some point, there was a breakdown in the process of transferring God's truth to the next generation. We read uh, in, in uh, some of the minor prophets that the priest failed because, uh, failed to teach the Israelites all the decrees uh, the Lord had given them through, uh, uh, through the Word or through uh, God's covenant. Uh, we, uh, we see this even in, in Leviticus 10. The fathers also failed. In Deuteronomy 6, 1 through 9, they failed to teach God's truth both formally and informally. By that, what do I mean? Using the world as a classroom and life as a laboratory to communicate God's truth in a vital way. The result was that before long, God's people developed spiritual amnesia. They forgot. But you know, it's easy to do, isn't it? Within the span of just a few words in the text, a generation came and went until the reader now faces that Israel looks no different from the Canaanites among whom they choose to live. Wow. It is a subtle process. The generation after Joshua had it in their mind, but not so much in their heart to pass it on. You know, the developing process there. Their generation was not uninformed about uh, the working of the Lord. They knew about the Lord and and what He had done and His mighty deeds, but they had become complacent about the living God and had forgotten how to walk in fellowship with Him. That's so very important because we can teach our children, can't we? We can pass it on to the next generation, but if we're just passing information on and not a true walk with the Lord, then it's going to be... Or become a secondhand generation. When this happens, complacency, lukewarmness, and apathy. And we talked about this Wednesday night. I said, what, what would you like to see? What do you see here? What would you like to see different in America, in our church, and in other churches? And I think Susan brought up the key word, apathy. Getting rid of that. And that's so very important. But see, this sets in when we just learn facts and we don't live the truth. Concerning the amazing biblical truths that we've heard from our childhood, they're so very important. But if that's what we've heard and we've gained the knowledge and maybe we've made a profession of faith, but that's all we have, then they soon fade away, don't they? Wow. Wow wonderful biblical stories became, become just that, a biblical story this is a pattern which challenges not only Israel but the churches as well, how many have been blessed with godly up, upbringing how many of you heard stories from your grandparents the amazing work of God how many in here, raise your hand amen, amen But with those stories, if it doesn't change our life, and it becomes a part of us. How many of you have stories in here about how God's worked? Not just living. It's good to uh, recognize and acknowledge and all that and see what's gone on in the past. But how many of you have had, have had stories about what God's done in your life? How God's working. How prayers are being answered or... Or what, what has happened. You see, we've got to recognize this. We've got to pass it on. Me, I see these the little children today and, and the babies. and Man, we've got to help in passing it on. We really do. Otherwise, it's going to be a second-hand generation. And it could even become chair three. And we don't want that, do we? We don't want that at all. There's a complacency about spiritual things that can happen in our lives that will cripple our lives. We need to realize two things about this kind of crippling complacency. First of all, Eric Fromm, that's not the father of uh, Fromm that plays quarterback for Georgia, but Eric Fromm, he, uh, he once said, Hate is not the opposite of love. You think about that for a moment. Hate is not the opposite of love. You know what he said was? Apathy. Wow. To be complacent, he says, in the face of Calvary, is the greatest possible rejection of God. To be complacent in the face of Calvary and what he's done for our lives. Man, if we're not believing it, if we're not living it, we're not going to share it, are we? We're not going to be excited about it and people realize that and see that. And why read the Bible? It's just a bunch of stories just like everything else. I don't see any difference in It didn't make my... Parents live indifferently. That's what the younger generation will say. They just told me a bunch of stories. They were neat stories. You see, complacency will grow like a cancer. One of the greatest stumbling blocks young Christians have to deal with is not the opposition of the world, which many people think but the apathy of the so-called established Christian. How did this apathy begin in the second generation? Part of the problem, I am sure, lies with the first generation. We want to blame it on somebody else, don't we? So we're always going to blame it on somebody else. But if you're interesting about this chapter here and about this book, interestingly, However, the book of Judges puts none of the blame there. Did you hear me? None of the blame there. The second generation was held responsible for their failure. Sure, they failed the first generation in some ways. We all do, but we should learn from it. But we are all responsible for our own lives. And God would not allow them to shift the blame. We need to be alert at all times what God is doing. Otherwise, there will be a forgetfulness of what He's done, who He is. And that leads to being satisfied with the status quo, secondly. After Joshua had led the people into some victorious assaults on the land of Canaan, God came to him and said, Joshua, you are old and advanced in years, and very much of the land remains to be possessed. He said that in Joshua 13, 1. So from that, God gave orders through Joshua for each of the tribes to take the territory from the Canaanites. So the first generation did conquer parts of Canaan, but they left pockets of the enemy untouched. Then the second generation came along, and their reaction was, let's edit God's command. Why bother? Look at what we have. Canaanites aren't that bad, really. (laughs) We can get along with them. So they refused to move out in faith and take the land of God as he had commanded them to do, and they were content and comfortable. Those two words can be disastrous, can't they? Content and comfortable. It's so easy to become content and comfortable. And when we land, live in a land of plenty. And with that, they continually edited God's command. Let's think about it for a moment. Has there ever been a first generation that conquered all the land? No. But as someone once said, God never intended for the experiences of previous generations to be a diving board from which we go down but to be a foundation on which we are to build you see Satan wants us to believe that it doesn't matter uh, what the Canaanites have and how they live and, and we just need to accept them and be tolerant of them and pretty soon our tolerance and our acceptance will be a lifestyle that we see nothing wrong with we as believers should not be satisfied with simply reliving and reproducing the past god has more country for christians to take amen that's why ain't get left those pockets because they had to be they had to learn to be dependent themselves upon the lord otherwise everything wiped out then who would they end up being dependent upon which they began to do. And then that leads to God taking God's blessings for granted. Not acknowledging him. So then it shall come about when the Lord your God well in Deuteronomy, excuse me, Deuteronomy 6:10 through 12, then it shall come about when the Lord your God brings you into the land which he swore to your fathers Abraham, Isaac and Jacob to give you great and splendid cities which you did not build and houses full of all good things which you did not feel and hewn cisterns which you did not dig, vineyards and olive trees which you did not plant, and you eat and are satisfied, then watch yourself that you do not forget the Lord who brought you from the land of Egypt out of the house of slavery. God does not command us to give thanks because he needs it to to build up his self-esteem. His self-esteem is fine. He commands it because... It does us good. Have you ever thought about praise, worship, thanksgiving, and acknowledgement? That these are the greatest protections against the second second generation syndrome? In other words, our attitude towards our blessings and possessions is one of the most determinative factors in our spiritual health. (coughs) To be ungrateful about grace is not only foolish it's dangerous we need to be careful though we always need to uh, even in this we need to recognize the subtlety of our sinful hearts for example in desperation we might call out to the Lord uh, in our need and he meets our need he takes care of it but then if we're not careful we begin to build our own Christian life and begin to think that we can do it ourselves. And there sets in spiritual amnesia. Israel looked at the land they possess and began to think, look at what I have done. They became man-centered in their view. Apathy set in. And they also neglected God's word. It's amazing to discover almost no reference to the study of scripture in the book of Judges. Not so in the book of Joshua, is it? What is so central in the book of Joshua is peripheral in Judges. They just, you know, it's not that they didn't have it. They just chose to ignore it. Now, don't get me wrong. Ritually, they uh, did many of the things the law required, but their obedience was based on, and this is very important, their obedience was based on tradition. What the fathers had taught them. And it became just a tradition to them and not a relationship. Not a personal biblical conviction. There is an enormous difference between a direct and indirect relationship in Scripture. When people come and hear about, for example, about what the Scripture says and how it dealt with someone else. Man, we can rejoice and we can get pumped up about it, can't we? But if we don't allow the Word to change our lives consistently, then it becomes only a second-hand experience. We're enjoying what somebody else has experienced. Now, there's nothing wrong with that, but it, the, that second-hand experience must go to a first-hand experience if it's continued. Second-hand ex, uh, convictions are things They've heard from parents and friends and church members and pastors and other believers. They may agree with what is being said and even enjoy it. They may even get convicted by it. But until they have that consistent personal relationship with God, it just exists as a second-hand experience. Soon, secondhand experiences will lead to what? Complacency. Which will lead to apathy and disobedience. It will allow us to edit God's Word to the point where it becomes relative to us, what we want it to be, how it's to relate to us. It will result in a coldness and impersonal relationship. So, as the angel of the Lord came from Gilgal to Bochum. Where are we? Are we going to Gilgal to meet the Lord? Are we walking with the Lord? Are we letting him challenge us are we having that firsthand experience or have we slipped down to bottom where we're weeping to hear the ensnarement the failure the defeat that we're experiencing because of our disobedience have we become complacent indifferent you know God will take us back to Gilgal if we will just be true to him I don't know about you but I am challenging you and I am challenging myself to be The spiritual adults that we need to be to have a personal walk that is alive with God, not a secondhand experience, but one that is seeing God at work in our lives. And with that being said, this invitation is going to be just a little different. I want to hear how God, from just